You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Kaiser Permanente is leading an effort here on Oahu to help with mobile vaccination clinics in high-risk communities. It's uh, partnering with local nonprofits to reach out to homeless camps and community centers. It started reaching out in Papakolea back in February and did a Hawaii housing project for the elderly and the disabled in Honolulu yesterday. We talked to Kim Gibu, a registered nurse and senior manager for care delivery at Kaiser Permanente Hawaii, who's involved with the rollout. When we saw results online as far as the low vaccine rates of Native Hawaiians and other ethnicities like Micronesian, Pacific Islanders, and Filipinos, as well as the poorer outcomes where we have patients in Mualua Hospital in the ICU, and a lot of the ones impacted are from these populations, we determined that there's a gap there in terms of healthcare access or delivery. We wanted to find out what that gap was and try to bridge it so that we can promote healthcare equity for, for those populations as well, especially with a vaccine being really only effective as far as when we hit herd immunity, which is about 75% of the total population, we figured that there's a lot of these populations around the island, and we want to make sure that we provide them with the vaccines and get them protected as well, especially since they're the most vulnerable. So when did Kaiser roll out the mobile clinics? We rolled it out in late February. We have also since partnered with other organizations that do these vaccinations. For example, Project Vision has been doing them for the houseless communities, the encampments, and for prison. And then we partnered with DOH directly, the project manager for the COVID vaccinations for Hawaii. We partnered with Aid and Aging and Elderly Division. We partnered with MedQuest and other Native Hawaiian and Micronesian organizations like Papa'olo Lokahi, there's an organization for Micronesians, the Philcom Center, the Center for the Council for Native Hawaiian Advance, and we've been just growing that way. I know we're trying to be part of a coalition that involves Queens as well. We've met with Dr. Pham from Queens in terms of trying to get this mobile clinic up and running everywhere. The health department had the news conference yesterday talking about, you know, we're falling short in some of these areas, and there's a real concerted effort to get literature in Native languages and to really, I guess, establish the trust Mm -hmm. with those different ethnic groups. Definitely, and that's something that we found. Once we reach out to these communities, it's not about, Kaiser's here, we're going to give you your vaccines. It's really the partnership with the community and leveraging those relationships with those community leaders to establish trust that we're here for your community, your community leaders vouch for us and are actually having us come in to service you folks in the community. And we've gotten a better turnout that way because of, of that partnership. Project Vision is the one who's actually been leading the way in terms of the houseless vaccination. They've done quite a few. In the beginning, they had challenges with vaccine supply, but I believe we've gotten a, a steadier supply on the island, and so I know they're pushing for that. They have Windward, they have clinics in the Windward Center and everywhere else as well. And, and then, again, we're also partnering with them or working with them in order to make sure that we have these mobile vaccination clinics. We've just been helping each other. They've offered to help us out in our events. We've offered to help them out in their events. They have another project manager manning um, volunteers because we found that in these areas, language is a huge barrier. So we've made sure to bring interpreters and even online translation services on site with us to facilitate those. And it's been working really well. So you did a a Hawaii Housing Authority project yesterday. Did those residents there have to sign up for appointments or you just show up and, you know, they get advance notice, just come on down? How does that work? So because we knew about the difficulties with having to go online for registration, we plan on having a semi-walk-in clinic for that event yesterday. We actually had a bunch of volunteers that helped us out. They went door to door, knocking on every door to try and see if patients wanted to get vaccinated and sending them down or if they've already gotten vaccinated, which 30% of them are, which is great. And also, you know, for those that didn't answer, they went back around and had a second attempt at knocking on those doors. We've identified a couple that they couldn't really come down. There's about four areas, four patients that couldn't come down to the auditorium area. So we actually went upstairs and vaccinated them in their homes. And we also 
had flyers ahead of time that were slipped under the doors of the residents in order to let them know that we're coming. And we, we had a pretty good turnout, actually. We were pretty happy with it. Yeah, you said you, there are roughly about 200 residents of that complex? Yes, about 200 residents. Yeah, over 200 residents that did come down and get vaccinated that day. So w- what was the, the outcome then? Uh, were you able to reach everybody? For the most part, yes. We did have some no answers on some of the doors, but for the majority of them, a lot of them did come down. Actually, even before they were knocked on their doors, there was already a line, and they were very eager to get vaccinated, especially since they saw that there were interpreter services who were helping answer their questions, helping them fill out the questionnaires and the consent forms. I think it was very well received, and we were very happy with the outcome. And are are there plans for the neighbor islands? What can you share with us? We wanted to just try and streamline our processes before we take them out to the big islands here on Oahu, but then we're already in conversations with the Micronesian groups, and also Hawaii Public Housing Authority has properties on the neighbor islands as well that we are looking to target, as well as adult daycare centers, especially, you know, trying to really reach to our Native Hawaiian and minority group, Kupuna, which are the priority for DOH and CDC as well. We did have partners from Kaiser and Maui coming out to look at our process. We're having a mass vaccine event in Maui on March 27th, off Saturday, where they're planning to do a mass vaccination for anyone, member or non-member, just to come to the clinic and get vaccinated. And we're also in talks about plans on how to get the big islands and the other islands as well, including Molokai, Lanai, Hawaii. We've actually been giving the Pfizer vaccine because we found that, especially for really high-risk kumpuna, we've been trying to make sure that we get them the Pfizer vaccines and how we've been scheduling our events is that we do the event, and on that day, we already tell them when we're going to come back to do their second doses right at the same site with the same folks so that it will be easy for them to get the second doses as well. Okay. It's either Pfizer or Moderna, what we're giving out right now. We are always looking for partners that want us to come to their communities or to their areas for their vulnerable populations to get vaccinated. You can always reach out to Kaiser. We also have all our major clinics open for both, again, member and non-member to come in, register online and get vaccinated. The information will be on kp.org slash COVID vaccine, and we're more than happy to service them. But again, for those vulnerable populations, just feel free to reach out and we will be more than happy to meet and schedule events to come out to their areas. That was Kim Gibu, Senior Manager for Care Delivery at Kaiser Permanente. Uh, as for that Maui event next Saturday, participants are being asked to pre-register for those shots. There are also plans underway for other mass vaccination sites in the weeks to come, so stay tuned. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. Are you wearing your green today? I am. It's that time of year when corned beef and cabbage is on the menu. I've already had mine. And we start Googling recipes for green beer. It is St. Patrick's Day, a cultural and religious celebration that remembers the primary patron saint of Ireland. Born to wealthy parents near the end of the 4th century in Britain, not Ireland, St. Patrick's believed to have died on March 17th, around 460 A.D., for Oahu residents, perhaps you've driven or walked by Kaimuki St. Patrick Church and School. According to the church website, the idea for a new church started around 1917. 
It took some time and money, but Kaimuki Catholics were happy to see the new parish consecrated and named St. Patrick on February 10, 1929. You may think it was named for Ireland's patron saint, but it was actually named for its first pastor. And for today's quiz, we want to know his name. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide with support for nonprofits, including Haleo Hawaii on the island of Hawaii. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. On the Longview today, we check in with our political analyst, Neil Milner, and he wants to talk about pickup trucks. <laughs> Good morning. What are you laughing at, Catherine? <laughs> this is a serious subject. Well, I have one, and I use it to, it's a dump truck. I take it to the dump with my greenway, so. Well, part of the story about uh, pickup trucks, uh, and it's in the, the, I'm talking about an article in Bloomberg City Lab magazine by Angie Schmidt, who does a lot of writing about pedestrians and so on. Part of it is that how popular trucks are to buy pickup trucks. Five out of the ten biggest selling vehicles during this pandemic year have been trucks, and how little they're used for anything like what you use them for, which is to actually haul stuff to the dump. <laughs> um, and so what, what Schmidt is interested in showing is, is wh- what's happened to the trucks why that's a problem, and, and to some extent, why that's a problem, and why the trucks uh, the trucks are so such a popular item. And and as I said, the first thing is that they've definitely increased. Um, they've become not only are there more around, but they've changed in size. They're much bigger. They're much more orier, uh, oh, kind of ornery looking. Um, and they're much more likely to have what gets called a crew cab but really isn't used very much by crews. It's used by families. It's become a kind of family vehicle. So what you have on the road now, she said, is one more trucks, pickup trucks, truck more trucks that are bigger and heavier. Um, and, of course, they burn a lot of gas. They've actually gotten a little more fuel efficient, but still, they still burn a lot, of, uh, a lot of fuel. And they're, in fact, more dangerous, that the, that the in- increase in pedestrian deaths are associated with the increase in trucks. Well, I was surprised because the article says that, uh, what, last year Americans bought more pickup trucks and cars? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And I mean, if you start looking around and paying attention, you know, from my standpoint, I grew up in a different generation, you just see trucks in what I used to think were odd places, like, say, the parking lot of my townhouse where there are a whole lot of trucks, and not that many of them get used for what used to be traditional truck reasons. So the, the interesting thing about this article is why this, why this change has happened. And she said, well, first of all, and we, we knew this, the same thing was true with SUVs. The automakers like to, to market them and sell them because they're not subject to the same um, – environmental regulations for example they get classified as work related and so they don't have to report on on fuel mileage um and they become they become popular that way second that whatever they look like in terms of orderliness or size uh exterior size they have become more of a family car uh, uh in the sense that you've got uh, the predominant number that are sold now have the have the king cab have in effect two two rows of seats rather than one row of seats. But the other reason seems to be much more cultural and big surprise political that has something to do with polarization. She doesn't talk about this in the article, but it is definitely true. Surveys have shown that, of course, that Democrats and Republicans differ in all kind of lifestyle ways that on the surface have nothing to do with politics. And one of the differences. Uh, is that Republicans are much more likely to own trucks than Democrats. 
And that fits into some of the things that she talks about, about why people seem to own trucks. It's become a cultural and political statement. Um, if you remember how much the pickup truck got associated with um, Donald Trump, and I used to laugh, you know, you'd see these cavalcades of pickup trucks through Hawaii Kai with Trump signs, and I yes. used to figure you got people who are probably driving Teslas normally that go out and rent a truck somewhere <laughs> so they can look like a Trump supporter. But there clearly is, is something along those lines that, uh, that was going on. And, and she says, and based on other research, that what is really happening here is that the truck has become a kind of cultural statement for trying to maintain the old values, um, the ones that are not so environmental, the ones that think about how America used to be, uh, what somebody called petrol masculinization, which is a kind of jargony term. But I think there is something to, what, to this idea that trucks have become an important cultural statement of a certain kind of lifestyle that people feel threatening is threatened by going away now and that's not true with everybody like any other generalization in research but there is clearly something related to the kind of social polarization that we've seen that you see in in um, in uh, truck ownership well you know uh i know growing up um you know, there were lots of families uh, where I live that used pickup trucks uh, to pack their families. They all were in the back, in the bed. Yeah, yeah. You didn't have a car, I bet. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's the same with me. I grew up, yeah, we had a truck. A truck was not a political statement. It was my dad's job. He owned a truck. We owned no car. And so a truck to us was two things, the kids. It was utilitarian. You had one because you needed to haul stuff or deliver stuff. And the second thing, it was... It was not something that was associated with any kind of cultural statement or some kind of status symbol. You wanted a car for that. Um, you know, you wanted to be able to have a car along with the truck. This is a whole different kind of situation, I think. People don't own trucks because they can't afford cars. And people don't own trucks primarily to haul the kind of stuff that your family used to haul uh, or that my, you know, that my dad used to carry around. Well, and I, I know some people say, well, there's a coolness factor. <laughs> yeah, well, but the coolness factor is related to that. I, you know, my uncoolness factor was the fact that my girlfriend at the time, you know, we're talking in the 50s, who ultimately became my wife, when I would take her somewhere, <coughs> excuse me, in a truck, she would duck down so she wouldn't <laughs> be seen at the stop sign. It was not cool to ride in a truck. The cool people, which I wasn't, by the way, the cool people certainly did not drive trucks then unless they were hauling something around. You wanted a car. You wanted a 57 Chevy. There was no truck that was in the kind of fantasy vocabulary of people. That's not true anymore. Well, you know, I mean, here in Hawaii, we've got a truck craze, and everybody, yeah. of course, always wants to back into the space, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> now, remember, this is, you know, this is not just kind of uh, sociology or cultural anthropology. This has an impact on the environment, and that's one of the things that we're concerned about. First of all, if it has an impact on traffic safety. Second, the size of them, even if they get more economical um, for fuel efficiency, is going to change. And third, there clearly is a market. Fifteen percent of truck owners get their catalytic converter, essentially, <laughs> they, they, they take it apart so it's, it's not used. So there are environmental issues here, and as we move toward more electric vehicles, it'll be interesting to see whether truck owners move in that direction also because the car companies are clearly moving in that direction but to sell a truck along those lines it'll be interesting to see if they can use the same kind of appeal to americanism patriotism to the old working days that they used to sell trucks right because i guess if you look at a big gas guzzler maybe it's one of those you know i know care right yeah, i'm just going to yeah. drive it but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just interesting how they market trucks a lot of the same way as if you were using a truck in 1959, uh, but somehow there's a message here that says we're not using them for that, but you, you, know, you should own one anyway. Okay, well, I am waiting for an electric truck, but thanks, <laughs> Neil. Yeah, you'll get a Tesla, those fancy ones. Okay, <laughs> take care, Catherine. That was Neil Milner, retired professor of political science, who joins us as a contributing editor with his segment, The Long View.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch at the open-air Homa Cafe and galleries and courtyards open during extended weekend evening hours. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. These days, community is more important than ever. One way you can stay connected is by joining HPR's Generation Listen. It's a group of younger listeners who create events for like-minded fans of public radio. Gen Listen is currently looking for leadership team candidates on all islands. If you're interested in learning more about this volunteer position, send an email to hprgenlisten at gmail.com. Defects on the rail project. Lovely. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beach reporter Marcel Henri on the line today. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. Good to be here. Yeah, so I was talking wheels with Neil Milner just a second ago. Are we talking wheels on the train? What's up? Yeah, more wheels. So this is basically the latest problem to surface with with um, the, the rail project, and we still need to learn more about it. It's kind of a developing situation. But it came out during this pretty remarkable exchange at a council budget briefing yesterday on rail and, and the budget ahead. Basically what came out is that there are problems with the uh, interface between the the wheels on the driverless trains and the crossing points where on, on the tracks, basically. And these crossing points are called frogs, uh, apparently because they resemble um, a part of the, the hoof on a horse that's called a frog. Um, and furthermore, there's a, a briefing that's going to be happening um, tomorrow for the heart board. And the materials already posted for that briefing uh, mention that there are cracks in these frogs. So there seems to be an issue where the wheels don't fit. That's what Heart Director Lori Kahikina said. They're, they're not fitting on the, on the, the crossings. Um, and there are cracks in said crossings. And of what she, she briefly touched on yesterday, this could lead to uh, approximately year delay on the interim opening to Aloha Stadium. But like I said, the, the details, they're a little fuzzy, and we're expecting to hear more tomorrow. Okay, so this uh, city council meeting, uh, I understand it got kind of heated because the council members yeah, weren't too pleased about hearing about this as well. Yeah, it was a bit unusual. So what, what happened was the, the, the council right now is getting these departmental briefings on their budgets. Uh, Usually they're pretty straightforward. A lot of times when Hart gets up there, they'll talk about the kind of the long view of the project. Uh, Councilwoman Heidi Suniyoshi, who generally represents the North Shore, she's been a very vocal critic of the project. And so what, what's happening is Hart is going to get a briefing tomorrow. The materials are already posted, and these materials indicate that rail is now facing a total $12.4 billion dollar price tag and that's including financing and that uh the the city is probably short about 3.6 billion but this briefing hasn't happened yet but you know the 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 info's kind of out there so heidi was was really pushing uh for more details uh lori kahikina the interim director was a bit reluctant to to go into some detail because she hasn't briefed the board yet and there was this this give and take and it, it really did get kind of heated lori got a little combative about it and saying look I'm, I'm getting beat up because I'm just trying to share details as they come in and so that was the whole backdrop mm-hmm. and and when that happened she she's finally after that whole thing kind of happened she said look I, I wasn't planning to talk about this I might get beat up a little more but we have an issue with the rail with the, with the wheels on the on the trains and, and the and the frogs the crossings and that's kind of how this this all came about yeah so i mean you can see transparency you, you want it out there it's public record uh but yeah you, you kind of understand uh, the courtesy of uh, addressing the board but i guess what strikes me is you know what did you know and 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 uh, when did you know it so if hart knew about this some time ago why were we just hearing about it now yeah, we need to learn more about this strictly because I mean you're talking about the the they they've been running these these trains, you know, overhead now for a, for a while now. So we really need to learn more information about how this issue was was discovered and why it's frankly only coming out now. Okay. Well, I guess we'll stay tuned for tomorrow's <laughs> meeting and see if Lloyd Kaikina gets beat up again over there. But thanks so much, uh Marcel. Thanks, Catherine.
That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. To read his story on rail and the defects, visit civilbeat.org. The Center for Biological Diversity is suing the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for failing to institute protections for the native EV bird as required by the Endangered Species Act. Max Phillips is the center's Hawaii director and staff attorney. She spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about the service's failure to designate a critical habitat and develop a recovery plan for our native honeycreeper. So due to the extensive threat of mosquito-borne diseases such as avian malaria, and avian pox, uh, rapid ohia death, and climate change. The service listed the EEV as threatened on September 20th, 2017. Under the Endangered Species Act, Congress understood the importance when implementing the act of listing a species as either threatened or endangered was just the first step in ensuring the survival and recovery of the plan. So once that a species is listed, like the EEV was back in 2017, It receives a host of important protections designed to prevent its extinction and to aid its recovery. And one of the most important and crucial protections is to safeguard its what the law calls critical habitat. But the way I like to think about it is it just makes sense. You need to protect the area that a species lives in order to protect the species. So concurrently with listing a species, The ESA, the Endangered Species Act, requires that the designation of this critical habitat take place. And um, basically, it's the specific areas that the species occupies and which uh, it depends on for its survival. So uh, the law basically says it needs to be essential to the conservation of the species and that areas that which may require special management considerations or protections, and even extends to unoccupied areas that may become essential for the conservation of the species. And this is extremely important for the EEV as avian malaria from mosquitoes is forcing these species into higher elevation forests. So we really need to look towards the protection of higher elevation forests that the EV now currently occupy, but then even higher elevations as climate change force these mosquitoes even into warmer and higher elevations, so looking at reforesting. When it comes to a recovery plan, this also needs to be done um, within, I think, two and a half years are the rules that, were, that uh, were put forward by the service themselves. And basically, a recovery plan is the document that the Fish and Wildlife Service uses to maximize how to recover these species. And so each plan basically includes site-specific management actions and then objectives and measurable criteria that would allow for the species to be removed from the endangered species list. Because really that's the intent of the law, right, is to recover these species to the point where they no longer need protection. Now, uh, Hawaii has a high number of endemic birds, many of which are, if not already extinct, endangered. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there are 33 endemic birds that are listed under the Endangered Species Act. Yes. So sadly, Hawaii's already lost about 68% of its known endemic bird species due to habitat loss, disease, and the introduction of invasive predators and ungulates. As you said, of the 37 endemic species that remain, 33 are currently listed under the ESA, although nine have not been observed recently, and many in the science community believe these to be extinct. You honed in on the EEV as a particularly culturally significant bird, and I want to give you some time to explain as to why this was the bird that the Center for Biological Diversity really identified needed to be protected now. There's no doubt that the iconic EEV bird with its beautiful red feathers and its 
think Curved Bell is really an icon to Hawaii. And it used to be one of the most abundant of our forest birds found across all of our islands. Now, unfortunately, the Eevee bird is only really found 90% on the big island and a few birds still found on Molokai and on in West Maui. And so really the declines have been quite shocking. And the Fish and Wildlife Service's foot dragging is totally unacceptable as there are conservation measures that can happen now to ensure that the species doesn't go extinct for forever. So with the majority of the species being only on the Big Island, right, and as you know, the extensive threats of rapid ohio rot for our ohio forest, which Evie depend on for their nesting and for they survive primarily on the nectar from the lehua blossoms, we're really looking at at a critical extinction crisis possibly for these beautiful birds. Are you hoping that this case brings more public awareness to this silent destruction that is going on of these critical habitats and the loss of these species? Definitely, and also being a big island girl myself, I grew up hearing the distinct, you know, variable creaks and whistles and gurgling sound of the EEV in our forest. And now I walk through, and just my tiny timeline, right, I walk through those same forests, and they're quiet. And how unbelievable is that? How heartbreaking is that, that we won't even be able to pass down to our mo'opuna, to our grandchildren, the same beautiful experiences that we've had growing up in those same places. So, yeah, definitely, I hope that it gets the regulatory agencies involved. I hope it gets Hawaiian people involved. Just as we have a kuleana to our family, we have a kuleana to our our other family, our extended family, our our birds, our our forests, our you know our oceans. We're all interconnected, and it's like the canary in the coal mine, right? So, are the EEV our canary in our coal mine? I mean, with the impacts of climate change, it's really looking like it's so. Mm. Do you feel like this is a moment where people are more ready to get involved? You talked about it as a critical juncture. Yes, I think that, I mean, for as scary as this time has been during the pandemic and being isolated and, um, you know, really having to look inward, I really believe that that's forced people also to look outwards to all of the benefits that nature gives to us, you know, things that we just take for granted a lot of times. And the protection of our endemic, native, endangered, threatened species is so critical to the fabric of Hawaii, of our local people, and of our cultures. And, and so I really do think people are ready to, to stand up for what we believe in and think about what we can do now. To think about what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is required to do under the law yesterday, we can make real gains. Time is running out for our EEV, and these incredible birds are facing population declines of 70 to 90% over the next 80 years if action isn't taken immediately to minimize pressing threats of disease and habitat loss. So, you know, we're hoping that they'll say, you're right, we messed up, we'll get on it. That was Max Phillips of the Center for Biological Diversity talking about a new lawsuit to protect our native EEV bird. As for this week's Mono Minute, we are re-airing our very first episode featuring the EEV. Here's Professor Patrick Hart from the University of Hawaii at Hilo. EEV are beautiful honey creepers with bright red body feathers and jet black wings and tail. They feed mostly on nectar and their long curved bill has evolved to fit perfectly into the flowers of many native Hawaiian plant species. The Eevees sing a huge repertoire of songs, the most famous of which sounds a bit like a squeaky gate. Unfortunately, the Eevee are extremely susceptible to avian malaria and can die from just a single mosquito bite. Because of this, their song can now only be heard in high-elevation Ohia forests where it's too cold for mosquitoes to live. And we're in a race against time to save these birds before mosquitoes invade these areas as well.
That was Patrick Hart with this week's Manu Minute. From the mountains to the sea, Hawaii's birds can be heard in their native habitat. Take a moment to listen. Subscribe to Manu Minute, HPR's latest podcast, now available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your RSS feed. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. It is the Feast of St. Patrick's, commonly known as St. Patrick's Day. Earlier in the show, we delved into the history of Kaimuki St. Patrick's Church. According to the church website, Honolulu in the 1900s was quickly expanding beyond Kiwalo, Punchbowl, Kalihi, and Kaimuki areas. Uh, the Catholics of Kaimuki attended Mass in the uh, Convent Chapel of the Sisters of the Sacred Hearts on Wailai Avenue. However, by 1917, this became too small for the growing population. The chaplain of the Sisters Convent, Father Patrick St. Ledger, decided it was time to build a new church for the Catholics in Kaimuki. He started the plans for the new building but couldn't complete the work because of poor health. The Catholics of Kaimuki generously contributed to the building fund, and the new church was consecrated on February 10, 1929, and named St. Patrick after its first pastor. That's today's quiz. If you have one to share with us, write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Eyes are on the creation of a new entity in Honolulu, a new utility that the city says would deal with storm water runoff. The idea is that property owners will be charged a fee for runoff as the city looks to manage the water as it often overwhelms our drainage systems. Today we highlight a project that is using high school and university students to study the impacts. Two private sector companies are teaming up on an innovative approach to help our public schools. We hear from Mark Osman of the company Data House and Belt Collins' John Chung. We begin with Mark. The stormwater utility is such a unique but growing problem for Hawaii. And so I feel like this year is going to actually be more of a challenge for the kids. We've also got more stakeholders. And so I'm predicting that this will be a much bigger impact than even the previous year. So tell us about how you've enlisted the students, not just at the UH, but at Waipahu High. The, the schools themselves have been obviously vital in terms of cherry picking some of the students who want to have the time but also have that motivation to kind of come in and make that impact for the community. And then, you know, the DOE is involved. We've got Belt Collins, who John represents, who, I mean, we couldn't do it without him. We've got other stakeholders like uh, True, which is a technology readiness user, uh, user evaluation, which is a nonprofit, which is uh, a mission to creating tech-enabled jobs um, here in Hawaii. And they're really accelerating the adoption of technology and innovation here. And we got HCDC, which is the Hawaii Technology Development Corp. And they are also here making a massive impact where their mandate is to increase the tech uh, workforce for entrepreneurs. They have a sandbox in Kakaka, which is a beautiful space. Like you said, we have the two education partners, University of Hawaii, the School of Engineering. We got Waipahu High School. We got the private companies, uh, Data House, who I represent, Belt Collins again. So a lot of different components we have to consider. And John, uh, jump in here because my understanding is that uh, there was already kind of a relationship uh, with that school. Right. Well, let me, ba- let me back up a some and add to what Mark said. Uh, the, the CIMP started last year with just the computer engineering students. And, and during that time, I was actually at the Department of Education. We had worked with Data House on an initiative at the, at the department. Uh, I've since left the department. And when we, uh, CIMP2 came, came up about, Data House reached out to me uh, and, and asked if there was a possibility that we could integrate some um, 
predictive engineering component because that's the, the background that I have. And so the, the partnerships with the schools, the two colleges at the University of Hawaii, as well as Waipahu High School, was, was very organic. I brought in, uh, brought in the civil engineering aspect, and we found the tie to technology that we needed. And so that and incorporated the computer engineering students. What we were looking for was a sponsor or a government agency that we could consider the client. And that's where the idea of the stormwater utility fee came about because that has an impact to all of the landowners, in particular the large landowners. And the DOE has a lot of property on the island that um, this will be a significant aspect of the program that they would have to deal with. And so another role that I have is I sit on the board of Academy of Engineering for Waipahu High School. Um, And knowing what their students are capable of doing, we thought, well, hey, we need a site, a location to for the college students to practice what they're trying to do with their design work. So we reached out to Principal Kitayashi at Waipahu High School and asked if he would be willing to um, support the effort and which he was, and at the same time, he asked if there was an opportunity for his students to participate. And so from there, it just grew organically. We said, oh, that's a great idea. We were trying to find things that the students could do for the uh, university students. I think it's been quite successful. We have all three groups of students talking to each other in their specific areas of study and finding ways to make connections to solve the bigger problem as a whole. And Mark, do you want to talk about this bigger problem and explain specifically what we're looking at here with this storm drain utility and the fees that people are going to have to pay down the road? Hawaii has and is going to have a huge need in the in the somewhat near future. We've had a massive decrease in rainfall over the last 30 years, so the groundwater levels have declined. We have population increase, which is predicted to be, I think, about 1.6 million just on this island in the next 10 years. So obviously, we're going to have a more of a need for additional water supplies. The trade winds have declined by 28% since I think like 1973. And so we've had increased agriculture, increased development with concrete, et cetera, throughout the, the islands. And so that takes away some of the permeable surfaces that actually help um, kind of reboot our water supply. And so there is somewhat of a, of a huge need coming on the horizon. And so that's something that this, that's why this is so important. Not just the uh, uh, other facts of where the, the runoff and the actual infrastructure for water drainage is starting to not be able to uphold some of the increase in demand. And so, which means a lot of the runoff ends up in our oceans where, you know, our natural resources get hit and also what we enjoy and what our economic growth depends on. So... With all those different needs put together, like this is really a huge problem and, uh, and a priority for our state. And so for us to kind of come in and start to tackle this, it, it feels good. It's, uh, you know, we know that we're going to make a huge impact. John, talk about the practical aspects. What are the students uh, going to be involved in doing? The stormwater utility fee focuses on assessing a, a fee to landowners based upon the amount of runoff leaving their property. And the fee for an individual homeowner isn't all that exorbitant. It's a few dollars a month on, on that order. But what we looked at were large landowners like the Department of Education, where they have over 100 schools on the island. That starts to amount to a, quite a, um, a large bill, if you would say. The city has... And, uh, they're instituting as part of the program credits where you can reduce your fee by reducing the amount of runoff from your property. So that's where the students come in. We're giving them the challenge to look at the property from a civil engineering perspective, to apply the skills that they learned in school to find a way to reduce the runoff from the property. And that's purely from a stormwater aspect. The Waipahu High School students come into play because they're the people that are most familiar with their campus. That's their backyard. And so they're providing... Um, insights as to what their campus is like, um, helping to provide data to the civil engineering students so that they can complete their design work, and they're working together in that way. The other side of the equation is, or is would be the technology team or the computer engineering, engineering student. They're trying to put together the application that computes the, the fee from the runoff using data from the uh, civil engineering team. So at the end of the day, together, all these three groups, they work in their in their specific areas to help alleviate the stormwater runoff from the schools, but then also give the department or the large landowners a tool to figure out, okay, how much fee do I have to pay to help with their budgeting and forecasting? And then also if 
they can start to make better decisions. You know, do we really want to expand the parking lot? Or if we expand the parking lot at one school, maybe we should reduce some pavement in another school to help offset the increase in the cost and offset the increase in the runoff. So it's, I think it's, it's a great program, not only from a technical standpoint, but also to help raise awareness with the students at all three programs. So the solutions, are we talking about busting up concrete and maybe putting in grass pavers? That's a possibility that that falls within the realm of stormwater management. You replace impervious surfaces like pavement, parking lots, sidewalks and whatnot with pervious pervious surfaces. Like like you mentioned the grass cell pavers or they could do rain gardens or they could divert, you know, runoff from rooftops in the gutters rather than sending them down the driveway out into the streets. We could send them into a rain garden or some other facility to keep the water on the property. What about the rainfall? I mean, do you have models set up after you get the, the measurements of how much rain has fallen and and uh, how much, you know, storm water runoff is generated? That's a fairly typical engineering computation. So that's something that the civil engineering students learn in their coursework. And it's also something that the professionals, we apply every day in our in our standard workflow. So it's a practical application of what the students are learning. One of my goals out of this is to help raise awareness with the students in the in the programs to push them um, outside of the classroom. I think, yes, the academics will get you the foundation, but once you get out into the real world, you need to start considering other aspects and start working with other disciplines and other professionals out there. So in what, I, what we've seen over the last few decades, and at least on the engineering community, is the application of technology and the use of it has increased exponentially. So we're at a point where engineering students that are able to utilize both civil engineering knowledge together with technology, they have a better advantage than ones that don't understand the technology piece because a lot of it is merging to a point where it's seamless. And I imagine, too, that it's an opportunity really to connect with some potential mentors. What we've done with the civil engineering group is we've, we've collaborated with their capstone project, which is the senior design class. So that's already an established program, which one of the aims is to get project experience to their students in the, taking the course. We've added this additional wrinkle where we're adding external partners and then trying to get to, with the goal being, a real-world solution that has practical application, that not just some paper exercise that sits in, you know, in a desk drawer at the end of the day. I think it's really exciting that if the students are able to pull this off, they actually have something that they can go and, and see in the real world and say, you know, I did this. This is what I contributed toward. So at, at the end of it, we're hoping to have an application, a computer application that integrates the design inputs from the civil engineering team and from the Waipapua High School students that the technology team puts together and gives the client, the large landowner, the DOE in this case, the ability to um, forecast what their liability is on the stormwater utility fee, but also take a look at how they can reduce that liability through engineering design of the stormwater mitigation measures from the, um, the high school and the civil engineering team. Mark, do you want to talk about what happens after this? I'm actually working as one of the mentors, so I've actually got a glimpse of some of the work that's actually happened to date. We've looked at other states that have actually put a similar program in place, like in Maryland, and the students, for what they have actually come up with so far, to me, is hands down more innovative. In fact, I haven't seen anything as innovative in any of the states yet. You know, this mentor program has actually been proving really beneficial to the community for a lot of different reasons. Uh, when I think when Data House first kind of went into it, it was really based on, you know, giving back to the community. You know, Data House has been around since 1975, so it's one of the long-term companies that really give back. And so what we've already seen from even last year's program is that these students come out with such knowledge and such experience that they essentially went right into another internship program, and a few of them actually got hired by Data House, and that's just in, for the for the first year. So I think this year is going to be even even more impactful. As a mentor, you know, we really try to push these students to get into that kind of real world life. We kind of get them out of kind of the school mentality and really develop them as thought partners to get into become like an autonomous learner. And from there, we you know. What we do is we really try to push certain elements that aren't as typical in the classroom, like flexible tasks, uh, cooperative learning, and giving them, making them accountable for their decisions and having them explain exactly why they did something. 
and really voice that and as a group come up with solutions to real problems. And that's something that is just unique and they really become to get to excel because their their way of thinking is different. You know, we really try to push a divergent and con- convergent thinking process uh, by actually giving them a glimpse of uh, our solution-based methodology, which allows them to really go in and understand the problem, spend more time understanding the impact of what it has to the people of the problem affects. And so when the solution is actually created, it's not just a, a typical prototype, but it's one that will actually touch actual customers or individuals that the problem hit. John's going to probably be working more with the engineering students on the ground and in the White Powell High School. They're able to kind of go around their own campus, et cetera. But for outsiders to come in, it's a little bit harder nowadays just because of COVID. That's something that we're working with. You know, they're, they're getting around those issues and, and finding creative ways to solve it. I think the from what I understand, the Waipahu High School team are utilizing drones to capture data and then creating data sets that they can ship to the engineering students electronically. And like I said, they're, they're acting as the eyes and, uh, and boots on the ground for the, for the civil engineering team. They do have that ability to partner with the high school students to accomplish whatever they need to accomplish together. That was civil engineer Mark Osmond of Data House and Belt Collins of John Chung talking about an innovation project tied to storm water runoff that Waipahu High and University of Hawaii students are currently working on. It's part of the Community Innovation Mentorship Program. We're out of time, but tomorrow communities reflect on the year-long pandemic. A Maui vigil and claps and bells uh, from Manoa Valley. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. And you want to listen back to something you've heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation, Hawaii Talks.